The reading is Psalm 96 and can be found on page 602 of the Church Bibles. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Thank you, Karis. Good evening, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open at uh, Psalm 96. Um, yeah, you're going to need to. Um, sometimes we see God in the small things of life. Like, where is the kicker? There it is, splendid. The arm around the shoulder, the listening ear to someone who's grieving, the wonder in a small child's face. And sometimes we see God in the big things of life. The healing he brings after a huge disaster or a war. The millions he's brought to the church in China. The astonishing wonders of creation, like the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see they cover all of that. Some are very personal, some are angry, some are sad, some are joyous. And some, like the one we're looking at this evening, are full of praise awe and power. This psalm is very much about the big things. It's a call to lift your eyes from the mundane, the everyday and the prosaic and turn them instead to the splendour and majesty of God. I learned this morning during Edward's sermon that uh, this is one of the royal psalms that had completely escaped me in my preparation. Um, and when you read through it, you can absolutely see why this is a royal song. It's a call to look beyond what is close and instead look at the whole world and to understand that our God rules the whole expanse of creation. It's a call to sing his praises, to sing them every day and in all situations as befits the King of Kings. This psalm is also about God's mission to reconcile the whole world and every person in it to himself. It's about what we today call world mission. It's about our responsibility to share the good news of the gospel with those who do not know it. 
Let me pray as we come to consider God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this psalm. Help us understand the truths it contains. And please help the words I use speak into people's lives this evening. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the remarkable things about this psalm is that it was written at a time when the known world was quite a small place. We don't know exactly when it was written, nor do we know who wrote it. But there's a reasonable amount of evidence to suggest it was written sometime around a thousand years before the birth of Christ, and that it was written by David, of David and Goliath fame. The evidence, such as we have, is that this psalm bears a striking similarity to a passage in 1 Chronicles, which tells how David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. In 1 Chronicles 16, this psalm appears almost word for word, so it seems reasonable to believe that these are the words David used to thank God for enabling the ark to be brought back to Jerusalem, for putting God in his proper place. But when the psalm was written, the writer would certainly have had quite a narrow view of what the world was. He wouldn't have known about the Americas, large parts of Asia, or even parts of Africa. Now, when he talked about all the earth, or the nations, or the world, he would almost certainly have been thinking about quite a small part of what we today call the Middle East. But while the writer may have had that narrow view, God certainly did not. He could see the whole world, indeed the whole of creation. Long before anyone had even thought of the phrase world mission, God was articulating its fundamental principles. When he talks about all the earth, the nations and the world, he means exactly that. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue on earth. The psalm is divided into two distinct sections with a resounding climax in the final verse. The first six verses are a call to the nations to sing and praise the Lord. The last seven verses are a call to the nations to worship the Lord and for the whole of creation to rejoice that the Lord reigns. The final verse, final sentence, brings the psalm to a perfect conclusion, combining the Lord's righteous judgment and his truth. Let's start with those six verses and this call for the whole world to sing and praise the Lord. Let me read them again. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Now the word sing is repeated three times, so I think that makes it clear that our God loves to hear us singing. Now as someone who is completely tone deaf and has never sung a note in tune in his life, that is a massive surprise. I always imagined God would rather hear someone other than me singing, but that's not what this psalm says. We should all sing, whether we're in tune or not. And as it says in verse 1, the song we should sing should be a new song. So if, like me, 
when your heart sinks a little, when the music group leader says he's got a new song for us to learn and we all have to practice it a little, then I'm afraid you and I have misunderstood this passage of scripture. We should enjoy learning new songs and singing them. As that great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, put it, a new song, always new, keep up the freshness of your praise, do not drivel down into dull routine. We have new mercies to celebrate. Therefore, we must have new songs. The instruction in verse 1 is for the whole earth to sing to the Lord and that we should proclaim his salvation day after day. This is not one song sung once. No, this is a whole series of songs sung anew each day. And these songs should tell of the salvation God offers. The psalmist would certainly have had in mind earthly salvation, that God could save his people from their enemies. But the, this idea of salvation also points us ahead to the salvation offered by Jesus. Through his death on the cross and resurrection, this is salvation offered to all humanity across all time and space and is certainly worthy of praise. The psalmist then in verse 3 expands this idea to cover the nations and all peoples. Those of us who believe have here an, an express instruction to tell others of both the Lord's glory and of his marvellous deeds. Just a few weeks ago we had our World Mission Sunday here at Emmanuel. We had several of our mission partners, of whom I'm one, with us, and we heard about what they're doing around the world. Dave Mackey, who serves with his wife Mary and children, Dora and Reuben, in Pakistan, preached and then gave us an insight into his work with drug-addicted young men. He's helping the local church and others set up Christian rehab centres where these guys can be weaned off their addictions and brought face to face with the living God. Dave's most definitely declaring God's glory and telling of his marvellous deeds. We heard from Sarah Yaboa, who with her husband Sam founded and now runs the Beacon School just outside Accra in Ghana. They are working hard to set up satellite schools in the northern, predominantly Muslim parts of the, their country, in villages where there is barely any educational provision. By their witness to those communities, and in the way they educate those children, they too are declaring God's glory and telling of his marvellous deeds. Emmanuel Gill, who Garrick just prayed for, is another of our mission partners. He was here. He works with London City Mission, helping churches share the good news of Jesus with their Hindu neighbours in Harrow, Harrow. He wrote an Easter tract specifically aimed at Hindus, who are often happy to accept Jesus is a God, to add to their vast array of gods, but not as the one true God. Emmanuel too is declaring God's glory and telling of his marvellous deeds. The next two verses, 4 and 5 of Psalm 96, address the very point that Emmanuel encounters among his Hindu friends. These verses make it crystal clear that there is only one God, and that God is Lord of all. When the psalm, this psalm was written, the nations around Israel all had their own gods, 
each with their own backstory and alleged responsibilities for parts of creation. In this pre-Christian pagan world, the depths were ruled by Molech, the mountain peaks by Baal, and the sea by Tiamat. But the psalmist says they are nothing but idols. Some may have called them gods, but they're not. There's a brilliant play on words in the original Hebrew text, which, as a journalist who once made his living out of writing headlines with puns, I love. The word for idol used here is elihim, which is the word translated as worthless in other parts of the Bible. But the word for God is elohim. So there is a punny contrast between worthless idols and the greatness of God. Of course, we too have our idols, and we are all tempted to worship them. Think of the place sport has in some people's lives, or power, or sex, or money, or family, or any one of a host of other things. Yes, there's no doubt that we too have idols, things we treat as though they were gods and worthy of worship, but in reality, or not. <clears throat> this psalm makes it clear that we must reserve our worship for the one true God, the one who, as it says in verse 5, made the heavens. Verse 6 makes it clear that splendour and majesty are before him and that strength and glory are in his sanctuary. These qualities of splendour, majesty, strength and glory are personified here. Each personification shows one of the qualities which make up God. God alone has all these qualities, and that's part of the reason why we should worship him. He has the splendour and majesty of a king. He has the strength to overcome his enemies. And he has the glory of heaven. It's a very powerful picture of an all-powerful God. From verse 7, the psalm changes direction with a call to the nations to worship the Lord and for the whole of creation to rejoice that the Lord reigns. I'm going to read again from verse 7 to the middle of verse 13. Read it with me. I'll look at it with me. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. Well, just as we had three mentions of the word sing at the start, now we have three mentions of the word ascribe. A funny word, isn't it? It's quite hard to define, but it really means that you acknowledge where the source of something comes from, or what the reason behind an outcome is as in he ascribes his recovery to the medicine he took. So we, as it says in verse 7, all the families of nations, should ascribe to the Lord glory, strength, 
and the glory due his name. The Lord is both the source of glory, in that he's made everything in creation, and the object of glory, in that we should worship and praise him because of all that he's done. But even in his majesty and glory, God wants us to enter his courts, as it says in verse 8. He wants us to be near him. Indeed, as we see when Jesus comes to earth as a human baby, he wants us to have a relationship with him. This God is awe-inspiring and we should rightly tremble before him. But we can relate to him and have complete trust in him, in his power to save and in his longing for us to be saved. In verse 10, we see again that call to mission. We have a responsibility to tell the world that the Lord reigns. That's what mission is all about. We need to tell those who have no idea who our God is, that he is God. That he reigns and that the gods they might worship are not really gods at all. Of course, we have to do that in culturally sensitive and appropriate ways, some of which might take years of hard work. But there is no disguising the central message. The God of the Bible, made human in the person of Jesus Christ and offered as a sacrifice for all mankind on the cross, is the one true God. From here on until the final sentence, the psalm makes clear that God is totally and completely in control of the world order, both the physical aspects of creation and the moral aspects which govern the way humans interact with each other and with God. That's what the psalmist means when he says in verse 10 that the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved, he will judge the peoples with equity. Verses 11 and 12 paint a beautiful picture of the whole of creation, delighting in the joy of knowing, praising and worshipping God. Every single created thing, including the fields, the trees, the seas and everything in them, singing for joy. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? We don't normally think of inanimate things like seas or trees being able to sing. But the psalmist says they will, and maybe a good deal better than I can. Their singing is a way of welcoming the Lord to the earth. When he comes, as it says in verse 13, to judge the earth. Now clearly this psalm was written a long time before Jesus came to earth as a man. But even then there was an understanding that God would come to judge the earth at some point in the future. When he came in the person of Jesus, he came not to judge, but as a sacrificial lamb. By dying on the cross, he took on the punishment we all deserve and won for us a place in heaven. But there is no doubt that Jesus will return to earth once again. And that is when he will pass judgment on humanity. Let me quote just one passage. It's Matthew 25, 31 to 33, a very familiar passage. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. The distinction between sheep and goats 
is between those who know Jesus and those who do not. Those who have welcomed him into their lives as Lord and Saviour and those who have not. Those sinners who have turned to him in repentance and sorrow and those who have not. So why, if Jesus will return to earth again as a judge, is the whole of creation singing joyfully to welcome that very day? Well, that's made clear in the final sentence of this psalm. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Jesus will judge the world not harshly or without mercy, but with righteousness. He will not be vindictive, hostile or look for revenge. There's nothing secret about the promises Jesus makes. If you put your trust in him and turn to him in repentance when you stuff up, as you and I surely will, then he will have you with him in heaven for eternity. While the psalmist may have been looking ahead to a time when Israel would subdue her enemies, we can look ahead to all eternity, knowing that we will be judged by a righteous God in accordance with his truths. Now that should affect the way we live our lives as Christians. It should have an impact on what we do day by day. I think it should spur us to do two things. The first is to sing the praises of our God. I wonder how good we are at that. We may think we sing his praises during the service, when we sing. But what about during refreshments after the service? What about when we meet in home groups? Or when we meet our neighbours? Or our non-Christian friends? Our colleagues? Our fellow students? Do we sing God's praises? We should be known as people who constantly talk of how great our God is. That's what the psalmist is encouraging God's people to do as they gather in the temple. We should follow that example. If there's nothing you can think of to give God praise for, then perhaps ask someone else what most excites them about Jesus right now. Of course, I well understand that in the ups and downs of life, singing praise may not always come easily. We will mourn, we will grieve, we'll fall sick and we'll see those we love fall sick. But even in those dark times, we know God is in control and worthy of praise. The second thing this psalm should inspire us to do is to share the hope that we have with others. It spells out just how great God is and that all the nations will one day see this. So when you're next in the supermarket queue, on the school bus, chatting to your neighbour, down the pub with your mates, keep that in mind. I know how hard it is to get Jesus into these conversations, but if we really believe this psalm is true, the least we can do is try. And if you're still not personally convinced of the claims of Jesus, why not talk to someone who is? and see if you can find the reason to share the hope they have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we worship you. Help us to have your heart for those who do not know you. Help us pray for those people and please open up conversations in which we can share something of you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.